Uh, on journalism and democracy, and that is that both in, in discussions among journalists and in discussions among academics as well, there's been a relative neglect of the role of, of emotion in journalism um, and, and in communication and mediated public participation more broadly. It's just not something we've talked about very much. Um, and so, so what I'm trying to do in this book is to reclaim the importance of emotion in communication um, and also to try to understand more broadly its consequences for political life and for uh, media practice and understand it not just as something we should say emotional expression and elicitation is a great thing, but try to understand it in a more nuanced way, as a, both as a constructive and potentially destructive force in, in politics, and to understand also how different kinds of emotions do different kinds of work in public life and in political discourse. So in other words, um, if you do your journalistic work in such a way as to invoke compassion or empathy or solidarity for a particular subject, that is a very different kind of emotion than if you do your work to make people hate other people and go out and hack, hack off their heads with, with swords. Um, and both of these practices coexist, but haven't really, it's not something we often talk about, how different emotions do different kind of work. Um, now, I should say that, um, you know, th this is something that I'm quite interested in um, and something that I think not so many other people are looking at in the context of journalism, but it's not by any means a new or particularly original preoccupation in general. And so um, there, there's a lot of discussion across different disciplines that there's been a kind of rise of um, an emotional culture across Western societies and also a corresponding increased interest in questions of emotion and affect across social sciences and, and humanities. And that means that there's been an increasing attention to emotion um, across disciplines like political science, philosophy, social movement studies, um, and psychology. Um, and these kinds of fields take an interest in emotion in part because of empirical evidence that things like emotional appeals, emotional motivations, and expressions are actually central to social life, and that this is also true for politics. But having said that, um, this interest in emotion or questions of affect, as they're also called, is something that has yet to make a significant impact in the fields that I've traditionally worked in, including political communication and journalism. Um, and um, uh, one scholar has suggested that there's an emotional deficit in political communication. Um, even though there's a growing scholarly interest in what is seen as an increasingly close relationship between politics and popular culture. And um, actually, Henrik, you've done some work in, in related areas. And, and that kind of work often um, deals with questions related to emotion, particularly because popular culture is often seen as being more emotional than high culture, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit, what, what, that, um, what that entails. But in particular, what I would argue is that scholars who study media and politics and media and journalism continue to rely on a particular model for understanding media operation, which is basically the, what we might call the dominant liberal model, and that this has profound consequences for our role of emotion. So 
um, ju just to try to. Um, sorry, that seemed to be dropping off a little bit. Can you all read? Can you all read that? It's sort of it's sort of visible enough. That's that's perfectly fine. Um, well, that's actually worse on top. Sorry, I have to do. I think yeah, that's fine. So so basically, uh, what what I would say is that a lot of thinking about how to organize journalism, how to organize jour journalistic practice, and what the ideals of journalism should be. Um, are strongly informed by liberal democratic theory, at least in Western democracies. And liberal democratic theory came out of a particular history of opposition to the arbitrary rule of sovereigns and the supreme power of the church. And liberal theory has conventionally been greatly invested in the idea that citizens are rational. Uh, I mean, just coming out from the, from the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and so on, there have been very good ideological uh, reasons for the strong belief in the rationality of citizens and also for the corresponding juxtaposition of reason and emotion. What I mean by that is to say that conventionally speaking, reason and rationality have been associated with the idea of a good citizen and anybody who is too emotional or passionate correspondingly is viewed as a, as a bad citizen. And, and in, in the public sphere, in public discourse, there's been this corresponding idea that um, being overly emotional is a bad thing. It is not um, considered um, it is not considered consistent with a particular normative ideal of what a citizen is supposed to be. Um, so as, as Marcus uh, Neumann and McCune say in the quote that's dropping off the bottom of the, of the uh, screen there, um, th there's a kind of fundamental dislike and fear of emotion in Western political life. <laughs> um, and what I would suggest is that what I would suggest is that there's always been this kind of central tension in political thought between the need to involve citizens as rational and constructive participants in the political process and then this need to control what's always been seen as these sort of lurking, dangerous, irrational passions of the people, of the common people. And you can see this kind of tension in the work of political theorists. Um, you know, really since, since the beginning of political theories like Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, Kant and Mills. Um, and one very famous statement of this polarization of reason and emotion uh, comes from Karl Popper's book, The Open Society, written during World War II. Um, and here he sort of suggests that constructive emotions any emotions at all are really of little utility to political life and that emotion therefore almost inevitably becomes destructive because it's transformed somehow magically into violence. So there's a set of kind of what you might call ontological premises here which reveal some very deep-seated anxieties that are fundamental to this dominant uh, theoretical framework and also explain how rationality and the suppression of emotion, the idea that emotion is, is a bad thing, how, how, um, how they have uh, been central to political theory uh, historically. Now, what, what I would suggest is that the liberal democratic framework, this framework which juxtaposes just, just reason and emotion, um, has typically informed how journalists see themselves 
and how they practice their work, including that there's this belief in journalism's role in creating rational discussion in the public sphere by providing objective information to the citizens. And also clearly, um, this liberal democratic framework shapes a series of assessments that are made about particular forms of journalism. And we see that um, in the kind of discussions around how tabloid journalism or popular journalism is a bad thing and so-called quality journalism is a good thing. We see that in, in the discussions about the dangers of soft news and dumbing down, that basically any kind of journalism which uses emotional language or seeks to elicit emotional responses is, is a bad object, according to this uh, particular uh, way of thinking. And also, I would suggest that um, this theoretical framework, the idea of liberal democratic theory, has a particular understanding of the journalistic role, which is informed by this denigration of emotion, but also tied to the idea that journalists need to be independent and therefore objective, impartial, and dispassionate. So in other words, that, um, that journalists need to be these rational actors in the public sphere. And the whole idea of objectivity um, remains um, as, as quite a kind of normative stronghold on the journalistic profession, even though journalists routinely recognize that it is actually an unattainable ideal. So it's a contested ideal, but one which has a strong hold on the self-understanding of journalism. Um, and um, one sociologist who thought, I think, very helpful in such a way that her work became uh, kind of classic about this is, is Gay Talkman, who's an American sociologist. And she suggests, she, she, she suggested back in 1972 that there's something called a strategic ritual of objectivity. Um, and what she means by that is that journalists don't necessarily believe that you can actually be objective, but that she believes that journalists engage in a set of practices that are designed to protect themselves from the risks of their trade um, so that they appear objective, but also so that they're not subject to libel suits, so that they don't piss off their editors, um, and so they don't expose themselves to the various different organizational risks that come from being a journalist. And she suggests that it comes to play in all different aspects um, of journalism. But in particular, she suggests that the way in which journalists tell stories is shaped by this strategic ritual of, of, of objectivity. So she suggests that there's a series of ways in which journalists write their stories, um, which are the ways in which this idea of objectivity is actually put into practice in the everyday work of journalists. And one of the things she looks at is how um, every, every reporter sees themselves as gathering and structuring facts in a detached, unbiased, impersonal manner. Um, they don't express their own opinion. They don't express their own emotions. They put quotation marks around opinions, viewing them as a kind of source of evidence. 
And the idea is that through the practice of the strategic ritual of objectivity, journalists let the facts speak for themselves, and they themselves stand apart from any kind of judgment. So if you if you quote other people, then you yourself you remove yourself from the story, in other words. And what I think is quite central then to this understanding of objectivity as it's conventionally been, been understood in, in journalism is that um, journalists are supposed to be dispassionate, they're not supposed to be emotional in the way they report the stories. And yet there's a tension here um, in terms of how journalistic work is actually being done. And what, what I would suggest is that um, emotion is in fact quite a central aspect of journalistic storytelling. And also thinking about emotional reactions of, of uh, audiences is essential um, to journalistic practice. So um, obviously in some ways you could say it's fairly well established, even though it's implicit, that emotion isn't absent from journalistic storytelling, as any of you, you have, who have worked in journalism will, will know very well. So for example, there's this idea of um, liberal democratic theory that journalists are supposed to be watchdogs on concentrations of power. Um, and that's part of the idea of journalistic independence. But one of the ways in which that watchdog role is enacted is by showing yourself as being indignant um, at abuses of power. So for example, someone like uh, Jeremy Paxman, uh, the famous uh, BBC uh, journalist and interviewer, um, he sort of act, uh, acts out the indignation of the audience. So he actually often expresses himself in quite an emotional language, even uh, when he acts as this kind of um, stereotypical watchdog, or ideal watchdog, if you will. Um, also, as um, scholars of investigative journalism has, have pointed out, investigative journalists act as what we might call custodians of conscience through this complex but very consistent chain of reasoning, which first of all involves that they have to demonstrate somebody did a bad thing, somebody took the money, somebody abused their power, somebody did something very, very wrong. Um, but they also have to mobilize moral outrage regarding this wrongdoing. It's not, in other words, it's not enough that somebody did something wrong. We also have to get people angry about it. We have to elicit an emotional response. And the way in which that outrage tends to be mobilized is by getting a credible individual affected by the wrongdoing to denounce it, often in quite emotional terms, in public. And this is something that um, Etam and Glasser have, have written about. Um, also, you could say that political scandal reporting, which is a central genre in terms of holding governments to account, relies on the elicitation of moral outrage at the alleged transgression through this kind of very emotional uh, public denunciation through saying you, you've done a bad thing and people feel bad about this. Um, so there are clear emotional elements to a lot of, um, of, of central forms of journalistic practice. 
Um, and also there's a fairly well-established academic discussion on the role of empathy and emotional resonance in journalistic storytelling. Um, and what, what I would argue is that the elicitation of empathy is actually used systematically across a range of supposedly objective journalistic genres to engage audiences. Um, and this is perhaps not surprising. Um, I mean, research, research has found that, that central to a lot of journalistic decision making um, even if emotions not kind of openly discussed in the newsroom, is a set of calculations trying to think, well, how is the audience going to emotionally engage with this? Um, and one, one Turkish scholar who's looked at um, photo editors at a news magazine found out precisely that decisions about what photos to include were based on thinking about what is going to elicit the greatest emotional reaction. And the justification behind this was that we're going to get the information out more successfully. We're going to do a better job of acting in this liberal democratic role, providing information if we elicit a strong emotional reaction in the audiences. So, in other words, journalism may be drawing on these kinds of tools of objectivity in pursuit of its service to liberal democracy, but there are simultaneously tools of emotionality at play which employ kind of specific discursive regimes that rely on the explicit expression and elicitation of emotion. Even though oftentimes we think about emotion as a, as a bad thing, as, as I've already said. Now, what, what I'm going to, uh, what, what I've, the, the, the phrase that I've, I've um, come up with to kind of play with um, Talkman's notion of the strategic ritual of objectivity is to suggest that there is um, a strategic ritual of emotionality at work, um, which means that various forms of emotional expression are in fact central to journalistic storytelling across a broad range of journalistic genres. So. That is to say that rather than there being any kind of clear opposition between emotional and objective forms of journalistic storytelling, this strategic ritual of objectivity, this very systematic and routinized way of using emotion in journalistic storytelling coexists quite peacefully a lot of the time, sometimes in tension with, but sometimes peacefully with um, these practices of objectivity. And I would argue that the, the regimented use of emotionality could be seen as a strategic ritual where its correct display garners cultural capital, that is, it garners recognition in journalism. So that knowing how to use emotion in storytelling, or what we might call emotional intelligence, to use a fashionable phrase uh, in, journalistic, in the journalistic field, is what sociologists call a form of tacit knowledge which is implicit in journalistic socialization processes and, and in the everyday work that they do. So, so basically, specifically, I was inter I'm interested in investigating how emotion is being used in journalistic storytelling. And the kinds of questions that I'm interested in using or asking to get at these issues around how 
does emotional expression work in systematic ways? Are questions around how is emotion built into journalistic stories? Who expresses it? How is it expressed? And what role does it play in the narrative? Um, I mean, these are some of the kinds of questions that, that I'm starting to explore now. Um, in, in my work. And the way I've explored it um, is basically by looking at award-winning journalism. I looked at uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning articles um, from 1995 to 2011. How fun. Yeah, well, so, and one very good reason to look at, look at that is that it was a lot of fun, um, and I only discovered how much fun it was when I actually started reading these amazing pieces of journalism. Yeah. I mean, another reason to do it, um, this is my, uh, this is a sort of methodological justification, if you will, um, is that you could suggest, um, along with uh, the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu and other people who follow him, that awards are kind of cultural capital in a particular field. Um, that is to say that, put in more plain language, the Pulitzer Prize winners represent the best of journalism, the kind of exemplary forms of journalism. So they're the forms that best represent the ideal practices, um, at least in the US. Um, and that is not to say that, I think this is uh, there's an important point to make here, these stories are not typical stories. They actually, I think that there are, are differences, um, systematic differences between Pulitzer Prize winners and kind of bog standard, um, bog standard uh, daily daily deadline journalism. But they're exemplary stories, and they represent what is valued in the journalistic field. And so, for me, it was interesting to look at how they use emotion as a way of understanding. Um, what forms of emotional expression are, are valued in journalism, basically. So what I did was that I looked at um, all the, they, they have an online archive, uh, the Pulitzer Prize, win, uh, the Pulitzer Prize um, from going from 1995, and I looked at winners in all the, all the categories that are described as news category, that you could say a news category. So I didn't look at criticism or reviews um, what was the other one? Opinion or columns? Because precisely because I wanted to look at at genres which are conventionally associated with objectivity, in ver to varying different degrees, not all to the same extent as, as will become apparent. But all of these could, to some extent, be assumed to be new genres rather than ones that have this built-in idea that they include evaluation and emotional expression. And in total, the, um, there was or what I did also, also was that in analyzing them, I looked at the first listed story in each category. Anyways, <clears throat> to make a long story short, the winners are very different. Some of them are a series of 15 articles, 10, 15 articles, and others are just one story. So to be systematic and avoid over-representing the long series, I looked at the first listed story in each category. This means that I'm actually looking at what, oh, no, okay, never mind. If you just please. Uh, oh, so it's not that important. Okay. I think maybe I should just stick with my low tech. Um, no, so so I, you have a, I have a very small kind of sample in in, um, in sort of social scientific terms that I'm looking at, but enough to say something about the style um, of the journalism, and also enough to actually have a very rich qualitative sample of amazing amazing stories uh, to look at, and. The specific way that I studied these stories um, 
was that I did a, a kind of basic content analysis of micro and macro level features of each text. So that is for each for each text, first of all, I, I looked at it at the macro level in terms of looking at what kinds of leads were used, whether they were anecdotal versus inverted pyramid style, and also the extent to which there was what you might call personalized storytelling, whether it tells a story about a particular individual or whether it's more of an abstract um, story that doesn't include these kinds of individual stories, uh, which is actually some, something that's very, I mean, these, these things are quite easy to discern. At, at the micro level, at the looking at more concretely at the language, um, I used a tool from discourse analysis called appraisal theory, which basically is um, a method for looking at how we appraise or assess objects um, and individuals and how we express emotion. So. I looked at different things. One is expressions of affect, which are individual feelings. Another one is judgment of, of the characters of individuals saying, you know, um, she is, is a bright or she is a pretty woman. Um, and appreciation, which are evaluative descriptions of objects saying this is, um, this is a beautiful new chair, for example. And again, I looked at the first expression of each of these as they occur in the story. Um, so I didn't look at all of them, again, because the stories vary hugely in, in length. Some of them are 400 words long, and some of them are 7,500 words long. So if I looked at every single expression, it would hugely overrepresent the longer stories. But again, it means that I'm not getting everything in terms of these uh, appraisals. Um, and I want to talk a little bit specifically about, um, about some of my findings uh, now. Now, the most important overall finding was that there is a lot of evidence of um, at what I call the strategic ritual of emotion emotionality across the categories. That is to say that the award-winning news stories are pervaded by a routinized emotional storytelling, which demonstrates that emotional intelligence is indeed a salient kind of capital in the journalistic field. And it's almost as if you could say that these stories that won these awards were more similar to new journalism or narrative journalism than to conventional hard news genres. They had lots of anecdotal leads, personalized storytellings, and also widespread invocation of emotion or ethic, that is, as it's called according to this um, right, methodological uh, tool. So across all the categories I looked at, Anecdotal leads um, were used in 63.4% of all the stories compared to the conventional inverted pyramid lead, which opened just less than 20% of the stories. And all other types of leads uh, accounted for 16.8%. So you can see it's a dominance of anecdotal leads, which is kind of a striking finding considering the fact that these are you know, often in um, often often quite um, uh, hard-hitting news stories, often investigative reporting, and yet the majority of the stories had anecdotal leads. Um, if we look, I don't know if you can see this particularly well, but you can see that there are systematic genre differences. So, um, in feature reporting, feature reporting was almost completely dominated. By, um, uh, by, by anecdotal leads with 93.8% anecdotal leads and no stories with inverted pyramid leads. Whereas if you go to um, investigative reporting all the way over on the right, um, that had 30, only 35.3% 
um, anecdotal leads, which is still a significant proportion uh, of anecdotal leads. So do you all know what anecdotal leads are? Does everybody know what they are? They're, they're sort of, I'll, I'll give an example in a moment, but they're stories, uh, they're, they're leads which tell stories, usually about individuals. Um, Maybe for the non-journalists, if you would explain uh, the inverted pyramid. All right, inverted. Hundreds of thousands of podcast listeners. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, uh, in inverted pyramid um, leads are leads that give all the most important information in the first sentence, in the lead sentence, including the who, what, when, where, how, ideally as well. Um, so, it's, yeah. Oh, and why, why? yeah, indeed. Um, so, um, yeah, Rasmus, I think, knows this better, better than I do. But, that that all the that they're very information packed, and they're premised on the idea that you get all the information you need from reading the first sentence. And there, there are various different theories of why it came about. One theory is that it came about because of the invention of the telegraph. Um, so that if the telegraph transmission cut out, you could then um, had, you had the most important part of the news story just by having the first sentence. But another, I think, more convincing argument is that it was driven by concerns for the audience in terms of actually um, in terms of actually making the information more accessible. But as you can see, even though the inverted pyramid style is closely associated with conventional objective reporting, it actually has been uh, supplanted or surpassed by um, anecdotal leads in terms of the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, articles. And and so the, the kind of just this is an example of an anecdotal anecdotal lead here that it, it was usually used to draw the reader into a story that had wider socio-political implication through the illustration of how it affects a particular individual or group. So this is from the story that won the 1997 Pulitzer Prize in international reporting, um, which looked at life in Kabul after decades of war. And so the, the story in, uh, opens with this, 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 this quote here with this lead. And it basically tells the story about these resourceful, young men, um, five young Afghans who met on a bitterly cold morning last week for the gamble of a lifestyle, a light lifetime, gamble of a lifetime, um, and talk about how these young men, these individuals fight or struggle to make a living. And this particular lead kind of functioned as a way into the story which framed the series account of the difficulties of life in Kabul, which is actually quite a kind of an abstract issue in some ways, uh, which was marked by poverty and war and hunger and cold. And so, like many of the other stories, the anecdotal lead worked to dramatize these otherwise abstract issues that were of broader social political import. Um, and this is quite a common role. So again, all of the Pulitzer Prize winning articles, they win the Pulitzer Prize because they have some kind of social political significance. But at the same time, they also do this by drawing in the readers, often by using an anecdotal lead. I mean, I think what's interesting as well is that um, I, did, I actually did an analysis I haven't put in my paper and I haven't put in my presentation, but it looks at what are the different newspapers that win the prizes and how do different newspapers tell different stories. And the most kind of personal and anecdotal stories 
were the big famous newspapers. It's a smaller newspaper like the Honolulu Advertiser or whatever, like little little papers. They will tend to do more hard news stuff. But the big kind of trend-setting newspapers will will use these anecdotal leads, and this is what you know other papers want to emulate. But one thing I think is quite important is that again you have this kind of personalized storytelling in the predominant number of stories. And I mean, again, there's some there's some correlations between specific genres um, and and um, and personalized storytelling. So 97% of stories with anecdotal leads had personalized storytelling, which is not surprising, but um, but striking nonetheless. As opposed to only 5% of stories that opened with an inverted pyramid lead. What I also found was that in the vast majority of stories, there was some kind of expression of emotion, that 86.1% of all ex stories contained expressions of affect by journalists and 822 by sources. And most of these were negative. 77% um, of journalists' expressions of affect and 65% of sources uh, were negative. And I think some of that might have to do with the role of negativity as a news value. Um, but some of it, I think also, it cre obviously creates a particular image of the situation, it means that there's a lot of bad news out there. And what's even more striking is that the most dominant positive emotion was hope under very difficult circumstances, such, such as, I hope I won't die within the next year from this terrible disease or we hope that we will win the war on terror, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, the other thing that's interesting here, though, uh, which I also think is striking, is that although, although the um, expression of emotion is very widespread, there, are no, there were no examples anywhere in the stories I looked at of journalists discussing their own emotions. They usually talked about the emotions of, of other people, of the, you know, well, conventionally understood as their sources. And this, again, is very consistent with the strategic ritual of objectivity, um, that journalists take themselves out from the story. So a story can be very emotional, but it can also use some of the practices of objectivity at the same time. And I think that's quite an important point. So 50% um, of emotions expressed were of groups and, elect and collectives, such as saying investors are worried. Um, 20.7 were protagonists of, stor of stories, like Mrs. Jones was devastated by the death of her son, and then other individuals, Bob was worried about his mother in 28.8% of cases. You also, um, you have, when, when sources express emotions, they're primarily their own, but also sometimes discussing their emotions as part of a collective, either in a community or as part of a nation as well, was quite a common thing. So what I'd suggest is that you could say that journalistic storytelling outsources emotional labor, the responsibility for the emotion contained within the news stories and the elicitation of emotion on part of the audience. So you could say that the emotional storytelling of journalism is validated by the evidence uh, provided by sources, but in the Pulitzer Prize winning stories, it doesn't ha quite happen the way that Gay Tuckman um, suggest. And what I mean by that is that it's very rare in those stories to see um, descriptions of appraisal and specifically affect of emotion as being backed up by any facts. Sources of information for these 
appraisals are actually almost frequently invisible. They're backed up by quotes only in 32% of cases. So it's very different from what you'd expect from a conventional um, kind of um, conventional uh, objective style of reporting. For the for the most part, the sources of information remain invisible. On rare occasion, it's justified in terms of saying we've done months of reporting, we've done hundreds of interviews, or we've done unpublished research. But in a lot of cases, journalists were simply telling a story, and often quite an emotional one, without necessarily providing any any real evidence. And again, there's a difference between the big, reputable elite newspapers and the smaller ones. The big ones are much less likely to provide evidence um, from sources, and the small uh, the small ones who have this one shot at fame are much more likely to do so. Now, what, what makes things quite complicated is that there are stories that don't particularly express affect through the language directly, but that they can be in, um, emotional through a variety of other means. And this lead that I'm quoting here um, opens a series of stories actually by Associated Press which won the 1995 International Reporting Pulitzer by illustrating the devastating consequences of, of the civil war in Rwanda. And the lead uses the story of a genocide perpetrator to draw the reader into a broader account of the conflict, right? So it talks about uh, Juliana Mukankwaya, the mother of six children and the murder of two, the son and daughter of people she knew since, since she herself was a child. And then it goes on to talk about what she actually did. And, and you can just have a, have a quick, quick look at the quote, because I think it's quite an interesting one. And it's, it's also really interesting, because it's, it's a useful example of the difficulties, the methodological difficulties, in charting emotional expression. This little segment makes very limited use of explicit emotion words. You have words like stunned youngsters. But it's rich in what uh, discourse analysts would call appraisals, which set the scene to elicit audience emotional response, like gruesome resolve, horrific deeds, emotionless voices, impassive masks. And in fact, it explicitly remarks on the absence of emotion in the accounts of the alleged perpetrators. Um, and also the protagonist talks about how you know, there wasn't any emotional reaction. They didn't cry because they knew us. They just made big eyes. Um, now, what it really, the emotional impact of the story, what, what, where it comes from, is from the dramatic juxtaposition of normalcy that, you know, she's the mother of six children with the unexpected event that she's the murderer of two. And this is actually quite a common narrative structure, um, which in this case paints a, a very resonant picture of the horror of the alleged crime without almost any use of emotion words. Um, so this is actually quite a common way to create an emotional reaction, even though it doesn't use very emotional language. So you have to look at it qualitatively as well as quantitatively to get to these kinds of, of, of nuances. And also you get what's called, what uh, theorists call a presupposition, which is something we all share. We all share certain ideas about what's good and what's bad and what's wrong and what's right. And the presupposition here is that the needless murder of innocent children is a bad thing. And in fact, Pulitzer Prize winning stories are replete 
with instances of children dying. Uh, so, so frequent. I didn't actually analyze it, but I should have done. Um, no causal link has been established yet. No causal link has been established. But you know, you get, you get sick children in stories about DNA research, uh. about genocide, and about war, and about you know, all, the big, all the big themes are illustrated through the tragic example of the death of children, because it's something that resonates emotionally with most audiences. Um, so what's very clear is that emotion is used as a journalistic tool in this very institutionalized and ritualized fa um, fashion. But not only that, what's also interesting is that it's actually explicitly used as a criterion um, in the selection of winning stories. So another thing I looked at very briefly is the citations that are written to justify why an award is being given. And several of them, in certain categories at any rate, um, specifically mention emotion. And I've given a couple of examples here, uh, but there are plenty of examples out there. So it appears that there is an institutionalized recognition of emotional uh, intelligence that's consistent with the celebration of this journalistic style, which values the successful display of, of a strategic ritual of objectivity or of emotionality, um, I should say, over the kind of conventional uh, objective reporting style. Um, so just to quickly summarize, because I'm running out of time here, um, some of my findings are that journalists don't never discuss their own emotions. They outsource emotional labor. Um, they frequently describe the emotions of others. And these descriptions of emotions are rarely based on evidence as conventionally understood. Um, sources, on the other hand, frequently discuss their own emotions. And emotional expression tends to be negative. Also, I found that journalistic narratives overwhelmingly rely on, on anecdotal leads and personalized storytelling, uh, much more than I'd actually expected. But that they also deploy more subtle but very widespread narrative devices to create uh, audience emotional engagement. So just to conclude, you know, on the one hand, we have this situation where the use of emotion is rarely discussed by journalists and scholars. On the other hand, it's used very extensively in actual journalistic storytelling. And so what I think is that we need to think more carefully um, about the uses of emotionality and what the consequences are. And one consequence that um, you know, we might think about is how it, it constructs a notion of the public in a particular way and of, of the people, the subjects of stories in a particular way, but also to understand that actually emotional intelligence or emotional, the, the ability to master this strategic ritual of emotionality, the ability to tell the stories in this particular way is actually something that is valued in the newsroom. It's valued as an ideal uh, form of, of, um, of journalistic uh, practice. So um, the ability to express an illicit emotion through appropriate storytelling practice um, is a significant form of cultural capital um, in the newsroom, even if it's much more of a form of tacit knowledge than something that's very explicitly discussed. So I think I'll end there and welcome any, any questions from, from anybody. Thank you.